Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today I'm talking with Orlando Figes, one of the world's great writers on Russia. Ever since the beginning of Vladimir Putin's illegal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine in February, the Western media has been following events very closely. But while daily reports bring us news of what's happening today, less has been said of the deep and often very dark historical forces which run beneath events. In his book, The Story of Russia, Figes has sought to explain this history. I talked to him about this book and about one particularly significant year in Russian history just the other day. Hello, Orlando Figes, and welcome to Travels Through Time. You end your book, A People's Tragedy with a Cautionary Line. The ghosts of 1917 in Russia have not been laid to rest. As we watch this brutal conflict playing out in 2022, have you often had cause to think about that sentence well hello thank you for having me on the show um yes someone pointed it out to me the other day that uh, it was prophetic or something but i'm not sure how much prophecy i can claim in that in that last line but certainly uh what we're seeing in putinism which we might call national bolshevism i suppose uh, certainly has its roots in the methodologies of the Bolsheviks that come from 1917. I don't think that we can equate Putinism with Stalinism or Bolshevism in any simple way. In fact, he's an anti-Bolshevik, but certainly many of the methods that the Bolsheviks use, the conspiratorial methods, the terror methods, are all rooted in the in the revolution of 1917. But they've been sort of that 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 sort of um, ideology has been recast into into new molds, I guess. Yeah, history, I think, hangs quite heavily. I think your phrase is darkly over uh, the Russian people, and it seems to me from that infamous essay of last July on the historical unity of Russians and uh, the Ukrainians, and also in this careful managing or messaging um, about Stalin's crimes and the manipulation of that strong impulse of nostalgia, that Putin's actually been a very clever exploiter of history as an ideological weapon. Is that oh, correct? absolutely. And that's very much the, the argument in my book, Story of Russia, that history gets used by, by rulers in Russia in place of what we would call normal political discourse. I mean, they you know they, they don't have a long tradition of parliamentary discourse, political discourse. There's no clear meanings about what democracy means in Russia. So history becomes the sort of the quarry from which they they take their 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 political ideas and uh, and and use history for arguments about Russia's past, present, but also it's, you know, it's destiny. And, and Putin has done that very clearly. But the, the problem with 1917, and, and, you know, Putin confronted this back in 2017 with the centenary, which was, you know, virtually unnoticed in Russia. I mean, 100 years of the Russian Revolution, and it's virtually unacknowledged anywhere in the world, but certainly in Russia, uh, is that it's not really a very usable past. Um, 
because in Putin's ideology, 1917 was the beginning of the catastrophe. It was the the moment when the empire collapsed and, and when the Bolsheviks came to power, only to undermine Russia's greatness even further. Mm. It is. It's a, it was a problematic one. And it kind of plays into this idea of the complex and and difficult history but one thing with um nostalgia which is a point i made a moment ago oh yeah we can, i forgot we can, that one sorry yeah, but we can <laughs> we can quantify that in a way i think you point out um at one point in the introduction to a people's tragedy one of the the recent editions that if you go back to the year 2000 something like 60 to 65 percent of Russians did not see the end of the Soviet Union as being a good thing and actually wanted to go back to the past. And that in a way quantifies this intellectual climate or this political climate, I should say, that we're living in today, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it is partly nostalgia. I mean, the the popularity of Stalin in polls, which has ranged, you know, between 50 and 80% over the post-Soviet period, it's not necessarily nostalgia for a man who's going to, you know, go around killing people and, and re- arresting innocents. But it's, um, it's nostalgia for a period of security, uh, a period in which, you know, they were brought up to believe was a period of, of, of national greatness. So there's very strong polling to suggest that the Russians believe the Soviet period was the greatest period in Russian history. And I think this speaks to not just nostalgia, which is there, but it also speaks to a sort of imperial consciousness, which remains very much at the heart of Russia's identity, certainly in the way that it's developed for the Russians through the management of history in the public consciousness by the state. Um, and, um, and and Stalin represents the, 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 or the Soviet period is, is a period of imperial greatness for the Russians who saw themselves as the leaders of this, of this Soviet federation, even if, you know, politically, ideologically, they, they were not meant to speak as such. And indeed, in many ways, the Russians were victims of, of, of the Soviet system. But the way that the Soviet system is now remembered, it uh, puts the Russians at, at the top. And and I think we can see some of those post-imperial attitudes uh, translating into this war. So the way the Russians look at the Ukrainians going back into imperial history was to see them as sort of our little brothers, but inferior little brothers um, who, you know, if they try to escape our influence, this is this is now paraphrasing Putin in that article you, you mentioned, if they try to escape our influence, they just fall under the influence of the West, which uses Ukraine against Russia. But that in sense of imperial unity with Ukrainians, but also, which is partly backed by, you know, just the experience of living in the Soviet Union. There's so many families that have Ukrainian and Russian relatives, and there's so many connections between the two countries and cultures and places that it it's the sort of national divisions we're seeing now uh, between Ukraine and Russia strike many people, even in Ukraine, as really very, very artificial. So it's that, but it's it's also, you know, this the sense of nostalgia for the Soviet period and the sense of, of sort of superiority to the Russians and therefore the urge, which I think we're now seeing in this brutal atrocities that the Russian troops are carrying out to punish the Ukrainians for breaking away. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still fighting over that in a way which which suggests that without that imperial consciousness for the Russians encouraged by the state there's a bit of an identity crisis for the Russians you know who are we as a nation what are we going to be as a nation how can we be a nation without the Ukrainians as part of our nation so in a sense the imperial tradition has been so strong in Russia 
that it's quite difficult to become a post-imperial nation-state at peace with your with your your neighbours. Yeah, I, uh, just on that essay, one one last question, because I remember in February this year, just after the invasion had commenced, there was a conversation between Owen Matthews, a journalist, yeah. um, and Radek Sikorsky, I think. Oh, yeah, yep. and I know both gentlemen, yeah. Both very well-informed um Putin watches, I suppose you could say, in, in many ways, or yeah, Kremlin watches. Kremlin watches yeah. That's a better term, isn't it? And they had wildly differing opinions because Radek had said, as soon as he read that essay, he knew what was coming. Last summer, he could he could see yeah. um, in the arc of history what was on the horizon. And Owen Matthews said he never believed Putin would do it. Did you have any reaction yourself to reading that piece last? July. Yeah, no, I, I sort of am closer to Radic on that. I, I wouldn't say I foresaw what was going to happen, but I I mean, that article in which he argues essentially that, that Ukraine is part of Russia, historically part of greater Russia, and that it, it can, if it breaks away, it will be used against Russia and that, you know, if it's to leave, if it left the Soviet Union, which it had every right to do in 1991, it should have left with what it came in with, which is much less than it has now. Mm. Um, that That's the core of what he argues. But um, that did strike me at the time as virtually a declaration of war, mm. given all the bad blood, the bad um, rhetoric, the invasion of Crimea in 2014. And I think that's really the context in which I began to approach the story of Russia, a sense that, you know, I wanted to do a, a concise history of Russia that would be covering everything in a sense, but in, in a thousand uh, years, but, you know, in, in 300 pages. Um, yeah. But it did strike me that it was important to focus on the ideas driving Russian history and the way the Russians have seen their own history because there was a growing sense, I had a sense of a growing disconnect between the way they see their history, the stories they've told about their past, which can be used by Putin to justify uh, the war and which can have some persuasive power over the Russian population brought up on the stories that they have been. And our own view of Russian history. I mean, certainly the way I've taught Russian history for 35 years. I mean, there's very, very, very little common ground between those two um, two perspectives on Russia. And I just felt that we just got Russia so wrong that given this build-up attention since 2014 or, and before, it was really important to understand how the Russians saw their history and where they were coming from in order to deal with them now. And, 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 and so I think I, I tend to be more with on on Radic's side there, but I was with Owen on the twenty fourth of February when we we did a Spectator TV bro, uh, podcast together, and we were both sort of very shocked. I was very, I was surprised by the um, extent of the invasion. I thought it was much more likely that Putin would uh, um, send troops into East Ukraine um, for another incursion to support the separatists there uh, and use that as diplomatic leverage to mm. put more pressure on on the West to to, to make concessions about uh, Ukrainian NATO membership not being ever on the table. I think that's what they wanted at that point. That's what they were saying. But it seems, uh, as we can tell from this development, they, well, A, it's not clear what they really want. Um, are they fighting Ukraine? Are they fighting the West? Are they making a land grab? Are they trying to rectify history? I mean, they've used all those arguments and more to justify the war. It, it struck me at that point that if he really was concerned about uh, making sure NATO wasn't 
ever in Ukraine and withdrew from Ukraine in its military presence. But yeah, an incursion plus then some more diplomatic pressure was the way to go. So it really did surprise me that he launched this blitzkrieg and started moving troops over from every direction. And of course, standing behind this this one event, which is focusing our minds very much on on this part of the world, is this this long historical narrative, which you tell in the story of Russia, goes right back to Vladimir and Vladimir, if I'm, Indeed, if I'm saying yeah, it correct, Indeed. a thousand years ago, through Ivan the Terrible. It's, I think, incredibly enriching. And it it does, in a, in a way, I, I want to be careful with how I you kind of phrase this question, because we often hear on the news when we see you know, kind of interviews with leading Russian officials. So I'm thinking of Putin and Lukashenko the other day in Sochi. They were talking about that the West needs to respect us. They need to understand us. And we've often heard Lavrov almost belittle people for their ignorance on Russian history, particularly with Liz Truss earlier well, in the year when yeah, he was quite, shameful. quite, quite brutal. And obviously the way they're acting at the moment doesn't kind of provoke you to look tenderly at their history in in that sense. But do you think we have, since the Cold War, kind of developed a growing estrangement with this, the stories that are in this book? I think this is what you're alluding to a bit. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I'm telling the story of Russia from the Russian point of view. I'm telling the story of Russia as far as we can uh, ascertain truthfully from the the documentation and the way I've taught Russian history and written and thought about Russian history for my entire life. But I've tried to uh, show the power of, of ideas and mythologies in Russia about the past. So, you know, you alluded to this point that, 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 that Lavrov and others have said that Russia's not shown enough respect by the West. I mean, this is a very long-running theme going back through Russian history based on some fairly crucial ideas about Russia's role between Asia and Europe. And that, you know, we've seen it uh, from Putin uh, referring all the way back to the Battle of Kulikova of 1380, which was the first time any sort of Muscovite Russian state defeated the Mongols. I mean, the Mongols had had, had invaded and occupied Russia, including most of Ukraine, in, in the early 13th century and remained there collecting tribute for 250 years. 1380, the Battle of Kulikova, was the ter- first time that the Muscovites were strong enough to defeat the Mongols. And for Putin, he, he argued several years ago that this shows how Russia was already a great power in the 14th century but uh, and had shielded the West from the Mongols. Now, this is a very long-running trope in Russia's sort of national story, that we, we are the shield of Europe against the Mongols, and we, we save Europe from the Mongols at the Battle of Kulikova. And then that runs on to other stories. So it runs on to the story of Napoleon and Alexander I, that Russia saved Europe from Napoleon by, by defeating the uh, the Grand Armée on, it, on its march to And connected to with the story of the, the Great War, the Great Patriotic War. And the Great is, Patriotic War, say Russia saved, yeah. or Soviet yeah. Union saved yeah. Europe, the world which from, is the from big Nazism, one, which it? is the big one. Yeah. And and there's a sense that the, the Russians have always, uh, Russian leaders anyway, many intellectuals have always developed, that they never really got the acknowledgement of that from Europe, which look, looked down on them as barbarians or whatever and and for Putin in particular I think it became a, a very it became a, a real slight to him personally I think as well when I think the key moment for him when he said he threw in the towel with with Europe and said right this is it now we're at war with them was probably you know the in, it would have been 2015 no one showed up for the what would it been the uh, 70th 70th anniversary of victory in 1945. 
and because of the Crimean invasion the year before, probably quite rightly because of that, I mean, but nonetheless, no one of the big leaders turned up in Moscow for the 9th of May mm. victory day mm. parades and celebrations. And Putin, in interviews about that, you know, he was visibly upset by mm. that. He was visibly slighted by that. And he took it as a slight to Russia that this had never really been acknowledged, even, you know, given the disagreements over Crimea, disagreements over the boundaries of Ukraine. He still expected the, the West to come and, and pay homage to the, the Soviet Union for the 27 million people who paid for victory with their lives. It's such a it's it's fascinating and and it does and I can see in in my mind's eye at the moment, um, Putin the other day talking about respect and and there is real vehemence there. There's real passion Absolutely. and there's real I think real anger. And on the other side, there is this long running trope as well about the kind of Western Europeans not quite being able to put their finger on the Russians, them being a little bit elusive. And I've got a quote here, actually, which which is going to be my little passport into the year we talk about. It goes okay. back to 1917. And it's a journalist for the London Times who's who's there in, in, in February of 1917. And he's talking about, for those of you who are unacquainted with the Russian character, it's just there, yeah. it's there, do you know, in, in a kind yeah. of very subtle way. There's always got to be that that sense of explanation because yeah. they're a little bit... Well, you um, know what, I think, I mean, this is, again, another of the main impulses behind my writing of this book because I think, you know, we have got Russia wrong for a long time and we've, they, we've tended to sort of either have stereotypes about what the Russian character is and these have tended to be rather exotic stereotypes, you know, sort of probably owing more to Dostoevsky and Rasputin to reality. Yet we've also got Russia wrong because we tended to see them through Western perspectives. And the reason why we've looked at them in that way, you know, which is sort of to set them up for failure, you know, they're, because they're not like us, so they won't be liberal Democrats. So they're always going to be failures. But, you know, that is, is to sort of impose our own views on on the Russians who see the world in a very different way because of the long traditions of the ideologies I talk about in this book as well as the different history from, from the West. And of course, the Mongol occupation um, had a major say in separating Russia from the West. But it's, it's also so misleading because to a large extent, I think, and I do say this at the end of the book, and I would stick by it strongly, you know, the West has, has taken much of its information and ideas about Russia from the Russian intelligentsia. But the trouble is that the Russian intelligentsia, which is a tiny segment of the population, sees Russia through Western eyes. Mm. So you have this sort of circular, you know, series of expectations and values which never quite fit Russia. Mm. So perhaps we need to abandon the Russian intelligentsia view of Russia. Mm. Perhaps we need to put aside many of our presuppositions about what is normal in terms of democratic development or historical development and look at Russia in its own terms through the ideas that have driven and animated Russian history. And, and 1917 is a good point to do that because that is when everything turns. That is when it could have become a liberal parliamentary democracy in the European model, I suppose. Mm. But certainly the people um, who found themselves in power after February 1917 believed so. But, you know, it ended up only nine months later with another sort of what many Russian intelligentsia would say was an Asiatic despotism again mm. um, in, in the form of, of the Bolsheviks. Mm. 
let's go to 1917. This is the year that we're going to talk about today. And I think we're going to have to begin with a little bit of contextual scene setting for people who are not as familiar with the with the revolution. But this is like a the, the pivotal year, sorry for the cliche, in, in, in this uh, phase of Russian history. We have the Great War, which is sucking in Russia and is is being quite devastating on society. You have an unpopular autocrat, the Tsar, who has been in power um, for a very long time. You have a very discontented workforce, and all of these are with yeah, a bit of. There's a lot of understatement. There's a lot of British <laughs> understatement here. Um, and then I, I noticed when you write about this in um, a people's tragedy, you often go searching for parallels with um, with France in the 18th century. Do you think? Do you think that kind of stands? Because I know Rasputin. You talk about the the diamond necklace affair of Marie Antoinette. In terms of Star Nicholas, you say that he was a very unwilling Tsar. He didn't really know how to do it. And he kind of was myopic in so many ways and uh, became a tragedy in the end. Um, should we think of, of 1917 and 1789 as being quite similar social or historical um, settings? Well, I, the reason why I, I did focus on 1789 as the parallel is because I believe that when revolutionaries make a revolution, they do so looking backwards. They do so looking to the example of previous revolutions. So for the for the Bolsheviks, it was definitely the example of the Jacobins, but also the Paris Communards of 1871. For the liberals who took over power um, rather loosely, ineffectually through the provisional government, which was brought in after street demonstrations in February 1917 as a sort of parliamentary coup to oversee the transition of Russia to a constituent assembly to decide the form of the new state and to see Russia through to the end of the war and to, to sort of hold the fort while the Tsar abdicated. Those liberals definitely saw themselves looking back to the Jacobins. I mean, maybe the, the more moderate uh, uh, Jacobins who who would perhaps have been amenable to a, a constitutional monarchy. I don't think that was decided yet in, in Russia um, in, in, in March 1917. They were happy for all of that to be decided by a constituent assembly. But, uh, but they saw uh, Russia now, uh, given all the freedoms that it was given, in 1917, I mean, you know, literally you know, the whole sort of statute book of 300 years of Romanov rule was sort of thrown out the window and, you know, boom, 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 all sorts of new laws passed, giving equal rights to all the nationalities, ending religious discrimination, giving full rights to women, etc., etc. And it was, as Lenin was to say, the freest country in the world at that point. And the hope of the liberals was that they would now develop on the model of Europe since 1789 to have genuine national parliamentary rule, um, some sort of, I think most people probably favoured, some sort of republic, federal, loose federal, federation with the rights of, of peoples to, to, to leave the Russian Empire, which has collapsed really. And so, yes, they definitely try to understand and navigate the revolution in terms of looking back to 1789 and believe that that's possible. And I think that that's the great lesson of 1917, that it probably wasn't possible. Mm. 
Well, let's do a little bit of the the chronology then. So the year starts in the circumstances as I pointed out before, incredibly loaded situation. Then we get to February, which is we talk about the February Revolution, and it was a strange revolution in the sense that it was a proper, pure revolution. There was no obvious leader. A lot of no. the kind of the leading political figures were out of the country at the time. Indeed. I know that um, was Lenin in Switzerland, and um, others were in New York and wherever, all, all scattered, and and even they didn't really see it coming quite then did they right. and I, I'm going to read back a bit of um, a people's tragedy here because okay. it's nice for um, nice for description and you talk about well I'll read it the Grand Duke Konstanovich is that right how, how am I Konstantinovich. Uh, Konstantinovich, yeah. Let me get that right. Even had his Rolls Royce requisitioned, it was later seen cruising down the Nevsky Prospect with two soldiers lying on the front bonnet, several of his riding on the sides, and two with a machine gun mounted on the roof, although this proved to be of little use since the car was swerving too much for it to be held still and fired properly. Smaller cars bristling with bayonets presented. An even stranger image. Gorky compared them to huge hedgehogs running amok. Much of the fighting was done from these cars. This was the first revolution on wheels. So, I mean, that's, that's the kind of light. It's probably not representative of the, of the February Revolution, but this idea of something mechanised, new, coming up from beneath the people on the streets. And Absolutely. And the leaders were, were the soldiers. Um, I mean, mostly unnamed. And, uh, I mean, we, we know the names of, of a few of them. For example, there was a guy called Kid Pichnikov, who was an ensign in the army uh, in the Petrograd garrison and, and proved to be one of the most brilliant leaders of the, of the crowds during the February days. But as you say, the revolutionaries weren't really there. They were following the crowds, trying to organise themselves and mostly going to the Tauride Palace, which was the seat of the Duma, this parliament that had been allowed by... by Tsar Nicholas II after the um, after the uh, 1905 revolution, but um, and in the Tauride Palace you have you 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 know there's a, what's so fascinating about that revolution in which it, it makes when we see sort of the Arab Spring or other revolutionary situations now I'm always thinking back to the February days because so interesting how does a crowd organise itself mm. it doesn't have social mm. media mm. it just has rumour but out of the crowd soldiers emerge from the garrison who direct the crowd they've got the guns and they're fighting mostly against the police the police snipers um, and the last loyalist soldiers on who've taken to the roofs of buildings to shoot on the crowds which is why you've got this these hedgehogs going around <laughs> with 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 snipers uh, from from the garrison trying to um, defend people from 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 the police but there's no sort of there's no one saying this is what we must do but somehow through the presence of these soldiers and through the collective memory of what you do in street protests, because there had been a lot of them in Russia and there had been this revolution before in 1905, which had you know, basically failed, but was still very fresh in people's memories. People had a sense of what you should do. So there was this tremendous um, sort of self-help going on in the streets. I mean, restaurants were opening for the fighters. People were opening their homes to take in the wounded. And through some sort of rumour network, which uh, which 
which you know the the authorities couldn't really understand. They thought that there must be subversives and revolutionaries everywhere, but but they weren't. They, they were simply saying we've got to get to the Torre Palace because that's where you went, really. I mean that that's where the Duma was, the Parliament was. So people just sort of veered towards the Duma, looking for leaders, and that's where they found two types of leaders already in, in both in the same building. One on the on the on the right wing of the because uh, it's like one of those palaces. It originally belonged to Potemkin, Catherine the Great's great general and lover, built in the late eighteenth century. And in one part of of this of this complex of the palace, there were there were the Duma leaders who formed the provisional government to try and restore order um, and win over the generals. Because the big fear at this point was that if they allowed the revolution to radicalize and the the soldiers to get their way, then the army would collapse and there would be a counter-revolution. Mm. Um, so they wanted to keep the generals on board and, and succeeded in doing that. But then on the other wing of the Torai Palace were the more radical leaders mm. of the soldiers and the workers who formed the Petrograd Soviet. And they were divided. Some of them, like the Mensheviks, wanted to support the provisional government because they thought that you needed a period of democratic stabilization and construction before the working class and the peasants would be ready to sort of take part fully in the in 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 the democratic process to decide on the form of government and because they also believed that the war had to be kept going. But then you had other elements in the Petrograd Soviet, um, anarchists, various persuasions. I mean, not that they were in parties at that point, but they, they were that way inclined, who wanted to go all out for a, a, um, a socialist revolution mm. and, and couldn't quite understand why they were stopping now. So this really, this, is, this kind of goes to the heart of the first scene that you wanted to talk about, which is... Um, at the palace in March. And I should do a bit of geographical positioning here because of course oh, yeah. Petrograd, for those of you who don't know, is St. Petersburg, and this is the, the you know the center of revolution. Um the other part of, of, of chess pieces on the board is that the Tsar is he hasn't abdicated at the start of March, he will do very shortly. Whereabouts is he at this point? He's out. I always kind of imagine him you always see him on a on a train going he's through. On a train. He's yeah. always on the train. He's going. on a train. He's on a train because <laughs> as soon as the disturbances took part took took place, he, he wanted to get to be reunited with his family who were at Tsarsky Silo, which is just outside uh Petrograd, as yeah. Petersburg was called at that point. Yeah. But he can't get he can't get through because the, the railways are blocked by, by the revolutionaries. And in any case, he's he's under severe pressure to abdicate uh, because that's what the crowds are calling for. And um, so he takes uh, the soundings of his generals in, in that railway carriage. Um, and they all tell him the same thing. You have to go. You have to abdicate. Mm. Uh, because that's the only way to save the army, um, and um, and so he, he yeah he reluctantly abdicates, but he thinks he can do so in favour of his son. But then um, he, who has haemophilia and is young and ill, and he's uh, then made aware that he will not be able to live anywhere near his son because if his son is the Tsar in some sort of constitutional monarchy then um, Nicholas will have to go into emigration so then he decides uh, that he'll he'll abdicate in favour of his uh, of the Grand Duke Michal but he, he he doesn't want power either he's terrified for his life the crowd but it's is also not getting... illegal as a, as a manoeuvre is it not yeah I mean at this point what's legal what's illegal <laughs> I mean in a revolution there's no legality anymore yeah, no, so, so it's a question of what you can get away with I suppose inside the palace it's quite interesting you say 
say the, you mean the, the Torite Palace? Sorry. Yeah, this yeah. is this is the seat of the Duma, the seat of the seat politics. Of, but you have the Duma there, and then you have the Soviet. Mm -hmm. You said so. These are the two. If people want to get it in their head, these are the two um, important blocks of political power at that time. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Along with the army headquarters, I mean, along with you know the the, the general staff because they have command of you know several million men in uniform um and the northern front uh, is not so far away but those fronts are themselves shaky and showing signs of you know already sort of wanting to go home because they don't like this war um so um so there, there's a sort of triangular relationship going on and in the early days of february the provisional government was was the only mechanism really able to keep the generals on side um, and to keep the uh, the the war going on, on on patriotic basis, and by May when the first coalition governments formed because of protests against the war, uh, a number of the socialists come in from the Soviet to form a government in in May, which is based on the ideology of revolutionary defenseism. Now, this is the idea that we, we don't want to fight a war for imperial gains anymore. And the declaration of the Soviet in March said that they were not going to fight for imperial gains. Um, your listeners might might need to recall that, that in 1914, there were some secret protocols between the Allied powers that Russia would get Constantinople and it, it would get territorial gains from, from a victory. And they, they wanted to announce those because the revolution was anti-imperial but they felt that if they stopped fighting then the germans would would march in and reinstall the romanovs on the mm. throne um uh, and you know a lot of weight was put on the fact that the empress alexandra was of german origin and so they that it was a patriotic revolution february in the sense that they were they Two, the two sides of, of the patriotism were that to, to defend the gains of the revolution, in other words, democracy, but also to defend the country against a, a Germanic imperial force that would dismantle Russia, they feared, but take away the democracy they'd had. So the, the Mensheviks and some of the socialist revolutionaries came into the government on the basis of revolutionary defensism. In other words, we're not going to fight for empire, but we're going to fight to defend our revolution. And for those... In the provisional government at that point, most importantly, Alexander Kerensky, who was yeah. the, uh, originally the only socialist in the provisional government. I mean, how socialist he was, we can debate, but I mean, he was he was um, mildly socialist, but he went into the first provisional government as a minister of justice. But then with the reformation of the government, when the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries entered it in May, he became the minister of war. And he felt very strongly that the the uh, um, the renewal of an offensive, because you know Russia has been in retreat, a bit like it is now, but by then it was in retreat for two and a half years, effectively. Mm -hmm. And he felt that that if you launched an, an, a, a, an offensive in the summer, that would have two two effects. Firstly, it would strengthen Russia's leverage diplomatically in the world to push for peace. So you go to war to make peace. Sounds ironic, but they were through the Soviet trying to galvanize international democratic left opinion for um, peace talks across Europe. And they felt that if Russia had made some gains, then that would enable them to push for that more effectively uh, among the Western alliance. And secondly, I think Putin, uh, K 
Kerensky felt strongly, and here again, he's looking back to the example of the French Revolution, that if uh, the soldiers uh, went into an offensive, it would it would galvanize them into some genuine revolutionary patriotism. They would become citizens because they would be like the French revolutionaries when they were fighting against the Austrian counter-revolutionary forces. They would be fighting against the German counter-revolutionary forces. So he made a very famous speech, Kerensky, when he went to the front, uh, uh, saying to to the soldiers, "You know, do do you want to be citizens or are you just rebellious slaves?" And for a country, and particularly for um, a mass of soldiers whose fathers were serfs, probably, uh, or grandfathers were serfs, serfdom was abolished in Russia only in 1861. That was a tremendously emotional thing to say, an emotive thing to say. But this idea that you could use war and the sense of patriotic duty for the defense of the revolution to create citizens was 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 completely illusory as it mm. turned out but you can see that that, that someone like Kirinsky is is trying to impose the 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 structural um ideas of what it is to be a democrat in other words you can't really have democracy without citizens mm. um to sort of shock the the peasant soldiers into becoming that. Mm. And and I think that the, the thing which beneath that is so fascinating is this um this idea that you after so many centuries of Romanov rule you have endless possibility what the future is going to be has not been decided and it's going to come down to personalities like him. Um and you give us this um, this snapshot. We've got some words of Nabokov here, which are sure. always always worth. Um, Indeed, he talks about the inside of the Toride Palace being soldiers, soldiers, and more soldiers, with tired, dull faces. Everywhere were signs of an improvised camp. Rubbish, straw. The air was thick, like some kind of dense fog. There was the smell of soldiers' boots, cloth, sweat. From somewhere we could hear the hysterical voices of Arate as um, addressing a meeting in the Catherine Hall. I know also at some point you say there's a sewing machine in, in the middle of all of this. Yeah, quite and, possibly. I can't remember. Just, yeah. well, this, is, this is a book of a, a, few gen, well, <laughs> a few decades age now. But but what I'm saying is among alongside all of these big ideas and this is an age of huge ideas which are going to transform society and history um you have the kind of very visual manifestation of power in the kind of bayonets in the, the revolt indeed it's all there so one bad speech can you know kind of can have a very very quick and immediate response but i want to take you on to the second scene which we're going to mm. talk about because there's something really interesting that happens we, we were talking about a slight vacuum of power before mm. lots of people um are away, but one person arrives back in the spring, Lenin comes back. If this week's episode with Orlando Figes has inspired you to go on your own search for hidden stories through time, why not join a trip organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? Covering subjects from archaeology and history through to music, art and wildlife, ACE have over 60 years of experience in group travel. From tales of smugglers and stonemasons on the Romney marshes to cultural exchanges along the Silk Road, there are plenty of departures on offer in the UK as well as further afield. 
Each tour is led and hosted by an expert lecturer who can often provide exclusive visits and will help you to explore a subject in detail. Following a fantastic year with highlights including a musical cruise along the Danube, ACE are looking forward to more adventures in 2023. To find out more or to request a copy of ACE's brand new brochure, you can visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. And then we get to July the 3rd, July the 4th, and we're again in Petrograd, and we're at another mansion this time. And Shinsuke's mansion, to exactly. save you the problem of trying to pronounce her name. I'm very grateful. <laughs> um, Matilda Kaczynski was the famous ballerina, uh, reportedly lover of Nicholas II, whose mansion was um, confiscated in the February Revolution and taken over by the Bolsheviks as their headquarters. So I want to ask you the question, in the context of 1917, what's interesting about that place on those particular dates? Well, um, there are going to be mass armed demonstrations led by the Kronstadt um, sailors, part of the Baltic fleet, who are extremely radicalized, um, anarchist, Bolshevik. They've had that, they've declared their own Soviet Republic. Now, perhaps we ought to say that actually some of the, the, the great division over ideas about power in 1917 by this stage is that, you know, the men of February are thinking in terms of parliamentary power, one person, one adult, one vote, uh, and everyone... Along the European model. Along the European model. Yeah. But there's this other di- idea which Lenin has brought back on the sealed train uh, from Germany, which is Soviet power. Now, most um, of the socialists, including Bolsheviks, all the Bolsheviks, including to his embarrassment, Stalin as well, who was the senior Bolshevik in the capital at that point, uh, thought Soviet power was much too premature to talk about. Um, the 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 you know the, the working class was not ready uh, for the responsibilities of, of government, so they they saw Soviet power as something that might happen in the distant future. There's Lenin not comes yet back. enough yeast in the Soviet dough or in the Russian what dough. It, yeah, or something like all that. sorts of metaphors. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the idea was that you needed yeah. a, a, a stage of what they call bourgeois democracy in other words freedom of the press all the freedoms does that would allow of, things like trade unions and political parties to develop does this come out of classical marxist theory absolutely you, yeah. comes that you have these stages of yeah. revolution yeah. and that the bourgeois democratic stage of revolution must precede a socialist stage of revolution and that russia can't go straight to socialism From because it doesn't really have a big enough working yeah. class to sustain itself internationally and 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 the working class doesn't really have the political experience yet to to take on the tasks of government. So um, that was the majority view. But Lenin comes back uh, immediately in his famous April theses, says no support for the provisional government, and we want to move towards Soviet power, which is the idea. Now, let's not get too carried away by the word Soviet. It only means a council. That's all it means. And across Russia, Soviets are being established everywhere, 
in villages even. Um, and they're basically ad hoc committees in regiments, in the army, in the fleet. They're a little bit more organized because they're more socialist agitators there. And they have an idea of Soviet power, which had already taken root in 1905 because Trotsky had organized the Petrograd Soviet then, mm. which was like a workers' council trying to run a it also local government. It amuses me because it reminds me of the, the bureaucratic nature of left-wing politics. Oh. I think uh, Oscar Wilde once said, I like socialism but i can't stand the meeting well <laughs> yeah but that, that kind it, of idea they had a new word in russia which is meeting govania in other words uh, endless meetings yeah. which is you know what 1917 was about yeah. but this idea was coalescing that why are we especially among you know radicalized soldiers and sailors the idea was coalescing. why are we deferring to the liberals to govern us. Why don't we just govern ourselves and have a socialist revolution? And and many of the organized Soviets, you know, were were taking power into their hands. So in in the countryside, uh, peasant Soviet congresses were legitimizing the seizure of land by peasant communes in the localities. Um, Workers Soviets were doing the same in terms of controlling and taking over the factories sailor Soviets were trying to assert their control over the command structures. So uh, Lenin comes back and immediately says, yes, this is where, where we must go. And so this fuels the radicalization of, of the garrison in Petrograd and, and the armed forces where their Soviets being formed. And in July, this comes to a head on July the 3rd, because the, Kerensky, if we recall, has, has launched an offensive. And it goes very badly um, because he's he's in his delusion that, that, that these soldiers are going to become citizens, as he asked them to, and go fighting. But they 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 don't. They they go forward for a day or two, but then start running away when the Germans counterattack. And so Kierensky wants to call up reserves, and he wants to do so from the Petrograd garrison, where the first machine gun regiment is the unit he decides to call up. And he decides to call them up because they're the most Bolshevized of all the units in the garrison, which is about a quarter of a million soldiers in Petrograd. So they're going to play a key factor in what, you know, is going to result, you know, they're going to play, so they're going to play a key factor in, 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 in the revolution. Um, and um, the 1st Machine Gun Regiment, along with the Kronstadt sailors, say, OK, we're not going to the front. Uh, we're going to overturn the government come marching in uh, to Petrograd where the Soviet, all Russian Soviet is in Congress at the Tauride Palace. And they march first to the, to the Krasinskaya mansion looking for leadership and instructions from Lenin, from the Bolsheviks. And they don't know what to do. They're, they're in two minds. And uh, some of the Bolshevik leaders want to back the the ups the 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 uprising. Uh, Lenin is hesitant because you know if he fails, if they fail, he's going to go straight to prison. If not, get killed on his way to prison. And um, so he sort of backs down at the last minute. And when sort of pushed onto the balcony to instruct the, 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 the assembled mass of sailors and soldiers in front of him in the little park that's there, he gives them ambivalent instructions. 
Um, he encourages them, but he doesn't say to them what they should do. So they sort of then march on to the Tauri Palace, which is where the Soviet is in session, and they throng around it, and some of the more boisterous soldiers break into the Catherine Hall through the windows and infiltrate the building. And uh, Chernov, who is the socialist revolutionary leader, is sent out to negotiate with them, and they just sort of capture him, start um, threatening to kill him. So Trotsky has to be sent out to save Chernov, um, and he addresses the crowd, and it's at that point that he says that the Kronstadters are the pride and joy of the Russian Revolution. But um, the revolution can't succeed by making victims of individuals. You can't kill individuals to to to, to further the revolution. We need organization, etc. So um, let's not forget Trotsky at this stage is still a Menshevik, not even a Bolshevik yet. But, you know, he's going to shortly join the Bolsheviks. So they don't really have any clear, any, any clear sense of what they should do. One worker gets in, uh, who's from the Putilov factory, which is one of the most Bolshevized factories in Petrograd, and he, he, he says to, to uh, Chikaitse, who's a Menshevik chairman of, he's Georgian, um, Menshevik chairman of the Soviet in session there, he says, uh, we want you to seize power. And Chikaitse calmly says to him, we've just passed this resolution. Here's a copy of it. Take it home and study it effectively. And, and that's what he does. I mean, they disperse. Uh, the rain starts coming down. Uh, the 186th Regiment, which is loyal to the provisional government, starts showing up. And basically, it all fizzles out. Mm. Which, to me, is one of the great sort of scenes of the Russian Revolution, but also one of the great... Um, question marks about the revolution. Now, here was a real opportunity for however many armed soldiers and sailors there were outside the Torre Palace, but enough to take power. But without leaders, they didn't know how to take power, mm. which says a lot about revolutions and it says a lot about the Russian people as to whether they, you know, are citizens or rebellious and slaves. And it says a lot about Lenin as well, because I know you've written a lot about Lenin. And one of the questions, I mean, because he was a this kind of puritanical character in many ways. He lived, he was a professional revolutionary. That's Indeed. what he'd been doing great for years. Great conspirator, yeah. And I suppose there's a, there's a sense of this long run-up and him getting, being paralyzed by indecision in those... July come, days. Yeah, yeah. Th those moments come and then they pass. And we know that they kind of came again, but that could have been it for him, really. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the revolutionary the, at the decisive moment is only, you know, um, a step away from prison or death. And have you not spoken about, there's questions about Lenin's physical courage, aren't there? Because he often did talk about, he inflated the physical dangers he was in. He was often... He's a little uh, bit like Putin in that way. I mean, yeah. I mean, Putin locks himself away. I mean, what a contrast between Putin, who's sort of locked away because he's terrified of COVID, and Zelensky, who's out on the street making well, his exactly. presidential I'm sure that's been day. noticed. Can you imagine Lenin along a long table? Is Would he have had a large table to sit at, would you imagine? I, no, I don't think he would have done that, but he's. I don't think he would have been he didn't speak that many times in public you know he was i think he was a little bit i mean maybe unfair as i think i did to call him a coward but i think that he saw himself as so important to the r movements 
uh, cause that that he he needs to protect himself. So um, he wasn't going to put himself in line of danger, and you know you can understand why because you know as soon as the this uprising or abortive uprising fails, you know the provisional government then start releasing documents about his being a German agent because he had been helped to re-enter Russia by 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 the German high command. You could see that you know an anti-war propagandist of Lenin's stature would be very useful for the German cause. And indeed, Lenin does eventually take uh, Russia out of the war. Um, but the the um, the release of these documents um, by the provisional government's Ministry of Justice then quickly leads on to the ransacking of the Kashinsky mansion, uh, uh, an order for the arrest of, of, of Lenin. He discusses what to do about it and um, they decide, and I think Stalin was instrumental here, that he, he, he's he's not going to face the courts, which would have been one way of going, because then you can use the courts as a sort of political tribune. But they felt star that, that Stalin in particular felt that, that Lenin would be bumped off before he got to any court. So instead of facing the courts and using that as a political tribune against the provisional government, he goes into hiding in Finland and um, declares civil war. In other words, he says that there, there's no question of the courts. There's no question of justice here because we don't really have a legitimate government. What we have is a, a, already a civil war with the reactionary forces that are coming back to the fore now after the failure of the July uprising, mm -hmm. calling for the arrest of the Bolsheviks, calling for the closure of the Soviets. And, um, and, and Lenin believes that, you know, it's now a question of who will prevail, as he put it famously, who will prevail over whom? In other words, power is going to be resolved by naked violence. Power is going to be resolved, the power question is going to be resolved by civil war, not by any parliament or any court system. Which takes us, I think, pretty much perfectly to the third of your three scenes on the 25th of October. Do you want to just tell us what, what happens on that day? And Well, on that day is the all-Russian uh, Second Congress of Soviets. Uh, and it's going to meet in the Smolny Institute, which is the headquarters of the Soviet. It's, it's been, an ex-girls boarding it's school. An ex, yeah, it was set up by Catherine the Great. It was a, sort of a, a school for noble women. And um, in 1917, it was empty, So, but the classrooms were still all there with their labels on. And and it was the seat of the, of the Soviet, uh, delegates have been coming in for this second congress for some time now, several days, and it was widely expected that at that congress of 650 Soviet delegates from across Russia, there would be a unan uh, almost unanimous vote in favour of Soviet power. And the reason why they'd got to that point was really that the authority of the provisional government collapsed entirely in reaction against the um, July uprising, the new commander-in-chief, uh, General Kornilov, had tried to... Well, we don't really know what he was trying to do, but it, it seems that he had some sort of understanding with Kerensky to set up some sort of martial law system clamped down against the Soviets. So the Bolsheviks, uh, or Lenin, at least used that threat to galvanise his supporters for... Uh, a preemptive uprising to defend the Soviet Congress. That's how he starts. And from hiding in Finland and then in the Vyborg area of northern Russia, uh, which is on the Gulf of Finland, and then as he gets more and more frustrated because the Bolsheviks don't want to 
have an uprising. He comes to uh, Petrograd itself. And on the 10th of October, he manages to hold a secret meeting in, in the flat of a Menshevik, uh, 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 ironically, to get an agreement to put an armed uprising for the seizure of power on the agenda. But the Bolsheviks are divided about this because most of the Bolsheviks, in fact, uh, 10 against 2 at that meeting, vote in favour of an armed uprising, but they don't know when it's going to be. And most of them think that it's important first to have the Soviet Congress, which will vote for Soviet power. And what would that mean? That would mean effectively that all the parties represented in that Soviet, so Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, Socialist Revolutionaries, Anarchists and others, would have some sort of representative in a coalition government based on the Soviets. But Lenin doesn't want that. Lenin's uh, adamant that uh, only what he calls a dictatorship of the proletariat, by which he means a dictatorship of the Bolshevik party, uh, can now hold power. And uh, so the Bolsheviks must seize power, arrest the provisional government, and proclaim Soviet power at the Soviet Congress. And that's effectively what they do, because as the uh, delegates are coming to the Second Congress, he's getting so frustrated at the at the, the lack of armed uprising that he, he, he comes across Petrograd on that day in disguise to get to the Smolny. Uh, he's not recognised by the last a, police guards yeah. of Kerensky. Kerensky's gone off to the northern front. Isn't looking he for, almost arrested on the way? Or something? He is. He's stopped on the way. Yeah. Um, and because he's in disguise, the, uh, the last sort of police forces of the provisional government don't recognise him. They mistake him for a harmless drunk. And so he passes on, gets into the Smolny, goes to room 36, the Bolshevik headquarters, and starts laying down the law that they must have an armed uprising now, before the Soviet Congress really even convenes. That's what he wants. And so Trotsky's by this stage with the Bolsheviks and who had been only a few hours before proclaiming that the the soldiers on the streets, the Red Guards at all the intersections, the takeover of the Petrograd garrison by the Military Revolutionary Committee, all of which has happened so that Petrograd by this point is an armed camp. All of that is, says Trotsky, for defence. It's to stop a counter-revolutionary force preventing the Soviet from meeting. But once Trotsky gets into room 36, defence moves into offence, which it's sort of doing anyway. Uh, it's difficult to hold defence without spilling into offence when you're fighting for the control of railway stations, telegraph posts and all the strategic installations of a revolutionary capital. So that is when then uh, they start to get the maps out and find out how they're going to arrest the provisional government, which they do. And by the time, eventually, after a huge number of technical mishaps, they arrest the provisional government, not by the mass storming of the Winter Palace, as Eisenstein would show in his sort of mythological film made 10 years later. In fact, when they made that film, one of the old guards from the Winter Palace, you know, sort of butler type uh, in livery, said to Eisenstein, your people 
by which he meant the Bolsheviks, were more tidy the first time they came <laughs> here. <laughs> so it was more like a house arrest yeah. um, than mass destruction and, and, and revolution with mm. people sort of clambering over fences as shown by Eisenstein. But once they've announced the uh, arrest of the provisional government, Kerensky isn't there because he's off at the Northern Front, mm. but the rest of the ministers are, are, are taken to the Peter, Peter Paul Fortress, which is a prison. Mm. That is all announced to the uh, delegates at the, so at the Soviet Congress who've already passed a Menshevik resolution for Soviet power, but that would mean Soviet power in the form of a wide coalition. But when this news comes through, the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries make the biggest mistake of the whole revolution by sort of protesting against this usurpation of power, which they say they want nothing to do with, and walk out of the Congress. Well, that's a really bad thing to do because it means that the delegates, who are not really actually very closely aligned to any party in many cases, and who want Soviet power, but don't understand that by voting for Soviet power and by voting in favour of Trotsky's resolution uh, denouncing the Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries who've walked out, they've handed the whole revolution over to the mm -hmm. Bolsheviks who then start issuing all their decrees on land and peace and start forming the Chika, the forerunner of the KGB and instituting political terror. And within a few days of the October seizure of power, um, you, you have a Bolshevik dictatorship And it's already. just so very quick. And that's the point, so isn't quick. it? In, in a matter of days, you have this very clinical assumption of power, yeah. which is so different I mean, um, if we get beyond the myth, I mean, you talk about it happening in a way that if you were just the average person on the street, you probably wouldn't have even noticed. It just happens. It's Indeed. Something that happens well, John in Reed, the famous memoirist of, of, of the revolution and his fantastic book, Ten Days That Shook the World. I mean, he says on the night of the 25th of October, you wouldn't have thought there was anything going on. He was in the centre of, of Petrograd and he, you know, he said the only difference was that after his main course in the restaurant where he was, the waiter said it might be a good idea to move to the back room because shooting might start. So, you know, that... But otherwise, trams were running, the theatre was was on, you know. Completely so, different to February. Yeah. Completely. Completely different. And it shows that actually October was not a mass revolution. Mm. It didn't need to be because no one really was defending the provisional government anymore, just the women's cyclist battalion encamped in the, in, in the Winter Palace, a few odd cadets in Petrograd. But otherwise, you could pick up power from the street, which is what effectively the Bolsheviks did. Wow. This is, it's been fascinating. I could talk to you much more about this, but unfortunately, our time is almost up. I do have one last question. Orlando, if I gave you the opportunity of having having anything from 1917, is there anything particularly that you would like to choose? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a pretty good thing to have. Um, it would be the abdication manifesto, or whatever it is one calls it, I suppose, the act of abdication document by Grand Duke Mikhail, who... Um, was he the one-day Tsar? Or... He was the sort of one-day Tsar. I mean, he, yeah. he, he was landed with the job of being Tsar and then asked whether he was um, going to get any personal security. And Milukov, who was one of the cadets or liberal leaders in the room at the time and uh, others there, um, said, no, they couldn't guarantee him his personal security. So he said, OK, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be Tsar. If I'm one of be... the wisest things ever done in Russia, and, maybe. And he signed the... So the abdication was drawn up they they were at this point in the mansion of Countess Putitina, uh, near the Winter Palace, and the abdication draft was was drawn up on 
in, in a school textbook belonging to her daughter um, and written in that school textbook on her daughter's school desk in, in her study in this mansion. So it's the most probably, you know, the most historic document yeah. bringing to an end 300 years of Romanov rule, bringing to end the, the Russian monarchy, but written in hand on a bit of lined school textbook paper. Seems kind of appropriate, though, doesn't it? It, it kind does. Of bring, it, it, it's like coming back down to earth. And evokes <laughs> the improvised the nature of a revolution. Yeah. What exactly. legal? What legal sanction does that have? What? What? You know? What legal status does that document have? Oh. Hard to say. Um, That's such a brilliant but it choice has to serve. You know. Well, listen. With that, and I think it's a super choice. We'll bring this conversation to an end. Absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, the book you. is. Um, I think, you know, I don't really have to point out its contemporary appeal. It's a, it's a book that will really instruct a lot of people and entertain them as well. Um, thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Orlando Figes. His book, The Story of Russia, ranges over the past thousand years. And for those of you wanting to better understand the history behind this brutal war, it's an obvious place to turn and very much recommended by us indeed. As ever, head to our website at tttpodcast.com for more about this episode and to browse our library of time travels with everyone from Michael Palin to Kate Moss and Robert Harris. Till next week, though, that's it from me. Goodbye. <laughs>